Let's read our verses, Acts 15. I'm just going to read a section of verses, and I'll kind of work through the rest of it. But let's just read through a section so we kind of get the gist of what's going on. So verses 6 to 11, Acts 15. Uh, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It, recently, my uncle passed away from stomach cancer. Um, it was very hard for our family because my grandmother just passed away earlier in January, so there's been a lot of loss and sorrow kind of looming over uh, our family. But I, I do thank God that I had a chance to share God's love with my uncle and to pray with him just two weeks before his passing. And it was an incredible honor to officiate his funeral and to talk about the love of Christ in that moment. Now, something interesting happened after the funeral uh, was done. I got a couple of questions wondering if my uncle was really going to heaven. You know, I had one family friend pull me to the side and say, Kenson, please tell me, I need to know, is he really in heaven? Because you know that your uncle wasn't baptized. Are you sure he's okay? So I reminded her, that to the best of what I could see, my uncle genuinely trusted his eternity to Christ, and salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith alone. Now, after that conversation, my aunt pulls me to the side to ask me, Kenson, are you sure he's in heaven? Because he never went to church. He didn't go to Sunday school. Do you really think that he knew enough about God to go into heaven? So I reminded my aunt, it is by grace you've been saved through faith and not by how much you know because we will never know all that we need to know about God. But did my uncle know that Jesus loved him and would forgive him of his sins? He did know that. And finally, I had another person ask me with a tone of skepticism, are you really a priest? Where's your robe and collar? In other, ways, in other words, do you really have the authority to do this funeral? So once again, I say to this person, it is by grace you've been saved through faith alone and not by priests or pastors or church leaders. It's all about grace, grace, grace. Now, I share this with you because the idea of grace can be very challenging Grace is this biblical teaching of God's unmerited favor, that there is nothing we can do or say to add to our salvation. It is a free gift of God. Now, this sounds nice, but it's actually very insulting to the self-righteous because what it means is that there is nothing you can do that can make you acceptable before God. As a matter of fact, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that led Jesus Christ to the cross. Jesus alone and what he has done is only worthy of your salvation. Now, in our passage today, 
We come to a watershed moment in the life of the church. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, our message series is in the book of Acts, which recounts the first 30 years of the growth of the early church. It's a story about how an extraordinary God takes very ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. Believers of Jesus during this time are growing by the thousands, and they're spreading onto every block, neighborhood, city, country, continent, culture, to share the good news of Jesus. And it's with this explosive growth of the church, it started to create some problems, which leads us to Acts chapter 15, which is often called the Jerusalem Council. This is where the apostles and elders met together in Jerusalem to address a very, very important question, a question that was centered on the grace of God. How do you get saved? How does someone really go to heaven? Is belief in Jesus enough to be a Christian? Now, the answer to this question should matter not just for them, but also for us greatly, because if there is a heaven and hell, if there's eternity with or without God that is possible through faith in Jesus Christ, we must No, I would argue that there is no more important question that we have to answer for our lives. C.S. Lewis, a Christian philosopher, once said, Christianity, if false, is no importance at all, but if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So let's go ahead and see our verses here and see what the problem the church is facing here, okay? So look at verse 1 here. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, there was a lot of yelling, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, what you don't read here is that Paul and Barnabas are about to take a 7,000-mile trip to Jerusalem to answer this question. Now, why such a long trip? Why put on hold a very successful missionary journey that Paul is having right now? It's because getting to the truth of the gospel is of utmost importance. This is why all the leaders of the church met together in person. This is why this is an all-hands-on-deck moment that for many of us who have been Zooming Zooming for work, and all of a sudden your company says, everyone needs to come back into the office because we need to talk about something, you know something's about to go down, okay? Like everyone has to come back, right? And that's what's happening. They're calling all the leaders, apostles, and elders to come together. Why? Because they're about to discuss a gospel foundation issue. Either you are saved by grace or not. This trip was necessary because defending the gospel is necessary. And can I just say that this is why as Park Community Church, we will be spending all our energy every single day orienting you around the gospel over and over and over again because it is the foundation we stand on. We can spend all day talking about going into the neighborhood, spend all day talking about evangelizing in the loop, serving at Bread of Life. We can talk about planting a church in Hyde Park. But if our foundation is not solid, none of it matters. If you've ever been part of a house that does not have a good, solid foundation, it's a mess. Walls crack, ceilings fall, the house is unusable. 
This is why the Jerusalem Council was so critically important, because it was a gospel foundation issue. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles that brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, Is it necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses? The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate. Okay, so this is what's happening. The Christian movement is no longer a movement just reaching Jewish people, but it's now a movement reaching Gentile people, non-Jewish folks like you and me. So a question that is, that is arising from a very strict rule-following group of Jewish believers, formerly Pharisees, are asking, do these Gentile believers need to convert to the Jewish practice in order to be a Christian? Now, this question is very understandable because the very first people to come to Christ were almost all Jewish people. And in the Old Testament, God said that he would covenant with the descendants of Abraham, which is the Jewish people. And it was through the Jewish people that they would worship the one true God and obey and follow the law of Moses. You know, and, and one of those laws was the circumcision of males. And this was significant because circumcision was a physical sign of a spiritual reality that by doing this act, you are saying, I've now been separated for God. So these Jewish believers needed to know, should it be expected that these Gentile believers to follow the same laws and rituals? That is question number one. And this is where Paul and Barnabas debated against them. The Judaizers said yes. Paul and Barnabas said no. And this actually led to a very natural second question. If the Gentiles then don't need to be culturally Jewish to be Christian, how in the world are we supposed to fellowship together? How are we to do life and share something as a meal together? Because if eating bacon or shellfish or a medium rare steak is fine for me, but it's unclean and defiling for a Jewish believer, how is that supposed to work, okay? So these are the two looming questions that the council is facing. First, do we need to add faith in Jesus? And second, if not, how then do we share community? How do we do life together? Verses 6 to 19 answers the first question. Let's look at verse 6 to 19. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. 
And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related these, what signs and wonders God had done among them, through the, uh, among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter here, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Verse 19, the conclusion. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Okay, so here's the first question. Do we need to add something on top of faith in Christ? What we see here is that Peter speaks up first, which, if, which is no surprise if you know who Peter is. Okay, he speaks up first. And Peter's first argument is in verses 6 to 9, which goes back to his experience in Acts chapter 10 with the conversion of Cornelius. That Cornelius is a commanding officer of an elite special forces group, and God sends Peter to preach Jesus to him, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius. So Peter's argument is that when Cornelius came to faith, there was no ritual going on. Cornelius didn't get baptized. He wasn't circumcised. He didn't need to stop eating pork. Cornelius was saved by grace alone through faith alone. Then Peter makes his second argument in verses 10 and 11. Fellow brothers in Christ, fellow Jewish believers, are we seriously going to ask these Gentile believers to do what we could never, ever do? which is obey the law perfectly. We couldn't do it. Our dads couldn't do it. Our dads' dads couldn't do it. As a matter of fact, if the history of Israel has proven anything, we could never obey the law. And this is actually a very important theological point about the Old Testament laws and rituals. God never gave them as a way to earn salvation. God gave us the law to help us realize that we could never save ourselves, that we could never be perfect enough to earn salvation before the law of God. We all stand guilty. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied last year, Jesus exposes this by taking the law of, laws of God, specifically the Ten Commandments, and he goes deeper into the heart. That Jesus says, you might not have murdered, but if you have unrighteous anger, you have murdered in your heart. You might not have physically cheated on your spouse, but if you lusted, you committed adultery in your heart. You might not have stolen from others, but you've coveted, you stole in your heart. The law was designed for us to fail because it was never meant to save. The law was given so that we would know that we needed saving. And here's the good news. There is one righteousness that is greater than any righteousness that a Pharisee could produce or whether I could produce, and that is the righteousness of Christ. And that's Peter's argument. None of us have been able to obey the law, so let's not put this burden on the Gentiles. He calls this a yoke 
in verse 10. And what a yoke was is that it was a steering device that you put on an animal to pull the plow. And for the Jews, this was a very heavy yoke because it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was 613 commandments in the Bible that I can't even for myself keep track of the rules that I set in my own house for my kids. How in the world am I going to keep 613 rules straight? And that's Peter's point. You can't. Verse 11 we can only be saved by grace. This is why you can't trouble the Gentiles because the gospel always starts by taking burdens off. That is what it means to have grace. The burdens are off. You don't need to prove yourself. You can take the burden of your past off, the guilt that cripples you. Jesus takes it to the cross, the fear of your future. Jesus has secured it in the resurrection. When you come to Jesus, he doesn't first put burdens on you. He takes the burdens and puts it upon himself. That is amazing grace. That's Peter's argument. And after Peter speaks in verse 12, Barnabas and Paul speak up, and what they do is they just affirm what Peter has witnessed, that the Spirit right now is moving in an amazing way through all these different races and skin colors and cultures without any need or ritual. They are seeing what God is doing firsthand. And finally, James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church, he speaks up by saying that all that is happening right now that you're seeing is exactly as God promised. Verse 15, and with this, now kind of summarizing all the testimonies that have been shared, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And anytime you see that in scripture, it means Old Testament's about to be quoted here. And James, what he's doing now is quoting from Amos chapter 9, which is a prophecy that says that the home, the line of David, will be rebuilt. Why will, be the, why will the kingly line be rebuilt? Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Jesus, who is from the kingly line of David, is going to be the fulfillment of this promise, and he will be the Messiah of mankind so that they will seek the Lord. Notice it doesn't say the Messiah of just the Jewish people. It says mankind. The Gentiles were not an afterthought of God. The Gentiles are the mission of God. James here brings everyone back to Scripture, saying that all that you're hearing right now, just so you know, it's right here in the pages of Scripture. And can I just say, that is how every decision needs to be made, always looking back into the Word of God. So, do we need to add to our faith in Christ to be saved? James says in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not make coming to Christ harder than it has to be by adding all this stuff to the gospel. And this is the very problem with the hearts of the Pharisaic Jewish believers. They thought this salvation thing was way too easy. That God made it too easy to experience salvation. So guess what I'll do? I'll go ahead and I'll help him out. I'll add some rules, some regulations, some traditions that God never intended for saving faith. For the Jewish believers to do this, it was silly to do, to say that you can add to the finished work of God. 
It's like me looking at a piece of artwork of Rembrandt or Van Gogh or Picasso and think, you know what? I can make that way better. All right, give me my crayons. Let's do this. And, you know, and let me fix this. It's foolish. But this is what happens every time we think that we can add something to the gospel in order to be saved. We are messing with God's masterpiece. Verse 19, we should not trouble those who seek to come to Jesus. What this means is that we must get rid of our preferences or things that we're comfortable with that can keep people out of the faith. That I don't want my preaching to trouble people who are trying to come to Christ by using words that they don't understand. I don't want our church to be full of cliques where it's nearly impossible to share life with others. I don't want us to pretend that we all have it all together and project this perfect life and family that when the outsiders walk in, their conclusion is, clearly I don't belong because my life is messed up. I want us to be a church that is genuine and vulnerable with our struggles and to show our need for a Savior each and every day. I don't want to be a hindrance to those looking for God by not having enough small groups or children's programs or children's volunteers or having enough band members, musicians. I want to have enough opportunities in this church for people to connect with the beautiful people of this church. I don't want to make it difficult for people who are turning to God by mocking or speaking down about other people. I don't want to make it difficult for people of color and differences of races who are trying to turn to God by not having a diverse leadership team. I don't want to make it difficult for Democrats or Republicans who are seeking God by mixing political positions with the gospel message. You know, I don't want to make it difficult for Cub fans who are turning to God by talking about how much I love the White Sox right? We should not make it harder than it has to be to come to Christ. We have a message of eternal life or death. There is no secondary message to that. Now, just think about this for a moment. What would have happened if the Judaizers had their way? What if being culturally Jewish was required for our salvation? First, our worship songs would, be, would sound very different. It wouldn't be amazing grace. It would be amazing circumcision. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the law of Moses, right? No, that's why I'm not a, a musician. Rafe is like, I do not want a guy like that volunteering on my team right now, okay? All right, if the Judaizers had their way, This movement of God would have been crippled. Christianity, instead of being a multicultural people, would have been monocultural. Instead of the gospel spreading far and wide, it would go nowhere. That if a Gentile had to become culturally Jewish, it would be almost impossible for them to do life within their Jewish community because of all the traditions and purity laws and being kosher. So what would happen is that they would come to Christ in faith, but instead of being sent into the world, they would actually have to retreat from the world. Do you see how big this decision was? And James is like, no, we cannot trouble the Gentiles with this. The movement needs to keep going. Now, this leads to the second question. If these purity laws and rituals are no longer required, then how are we to table together? 
How are we to have rich fellowship with one another? Now, here for us in the Western culture, we don't do this really well because we eat in our cars and we do stuff like that. But to table together in the first century, it meant to have an extended dinner with good food, good drink, good conversation that lasted for hours. And if any of you have ever been part of an experience like this, it, it's felt so special. It's felt intimate. It, sometimes it's even felt holy, as it should be, because it's part of God's common grace to us. It's a beautiful thing to do. But here's the problem. How are we to table with one another when one person enjoys their freedom by eating whatever they want? And for another person, it defiles and crushes them. You know, for example, let me just give a really easy example. For one person, it might not be a problem to open a can of beer over dinner. But for another person, because of how they were raised in their household, they saw that alcohol was a gateway for other sins, and they really struggled with that. Now, there is nothing sinful about fermented drinks in Scripture, even though one can argue about the wisdom of drinking, but alcohol is not a pro prohibition in Scripture. So what are you to do when you have two people coming from very different places about this one matter? This is the kind of practical issue the council was dealing with, that the Jewish believers viewed that some things as defiling and Gentiles didn't see it the same way. So how was this going to be addressed? Verses 19 to 22 answers that. 19 to 22. James continues on. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For what ancient generations Moses had in every city, those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So James right now, follow me here. He makes a twofold decision. First, he says to the legalists, the Jewish believers, be inclusive. Don't add man-made rules and regulations to the faith of non-Jewish people. Don't make them Jewish first. And now he talks to the Gentile converts, and he says to them, be sensitive. So Jewish believers, be inclusive. Gentile believers, be sensitive. You need to realize that there are people with Jewish background that have an incredible sensitivity to the things you do. Be conscious of them, and thus, verse 20, abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from that what has been strangled, and from blood. So first, don't eat food that has been offered to pagan altars and gods, that even though you can eat it, because our God is greater than all. Don't do it for the sake of your Jewish brother and sister. Also, don't eat blood. It says in Leviticus that the life of the flesh is blood. So being kosher meant actually letting all meats bleed out. So Gentile believers, instead of eating your meat, medium rare, which you have the right to do, instead eat it well done for their sake. And finally, avoid sexual morality. Now, this seems obvious that the Gentiles should avoid this because this is part of the moral law of God. You know, to pursue purity and holiness is connected directly to his character. But what I think is actually being referred to here, in kind of in line with the other two things to abstain from, is that he's not so much talking about telling them not sleeping around, but to avoid anything connected with pagan worship. Because pagan worship was very sensual. 
So James is right now saying to these Gentile believers, avoid anything and everything associated with the pagan worship system. Do this for your Jewish brothers and sisters, even though Christ has set you free from the ritual of purity laws here, the purity laws, submit yourself to these three restrictions because you submit yourself to the law of love. Be sensitive to others. Your freedom is not worth their stumbling. Can I just say what we have here is a beautiful picture of what Christian community is all about. It's about people laying down their rights for the good of others. And this is the difference between relationships based on contracts and those based on covenants. That in contracts, you do this for me and we'll be good. And if you don't meet my expectations, we're done. In covenants, we say to the other person, I'm in this with you through thick and thin. I'll be whatever I need to be to see you more like Christ. For example, in our wedding, vow, wedding, wedding vows, it says, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, till death do us part. I love you so much that I am not going anywhere. You know, when I was sick with the stomach flu and I was throwing up everywhere and I barely had enough energy to put my head over the toilet, it was my wife who would wipe my face and clean the areas I missed. I thank you that in, in those moments, my wife was not married to me because of contractual love, but because of covenantal love. In the same way, this is what it means to walk together in covenant. We are there for each other. I long to serve you. I long to become this for you. I long to encourage you in your ongoing walk with Christ. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, sick or well. It doesn't matter if we're sharing a glass of wine together or a glass of sparkling juice. That stuff just doesn't matter to me. What matters is doing life with you. I covenant with you because our God covenants with us. How beautiful and stabilizing would it be to know that you're part of a community that was so quick to sacrifice for one another. Let's lay down our freedoms so that our brothers and sisters in the faith can flourish. Let's lay down our traditions our rituals, our sacred cows, our comforts, our preferences, so that others can come to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, finally, in verses 22 and 29, we won't have a chance to read this, but I want to encourage you to read it on your own. After the decision was made, word was now sent out to the surrounding churches surrounding the decision that was made, a decision that was led by the Holy Spirit because it was rooted in God's word. And this is what's beautiful. This was the response of those receiving this message, verse 31. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Do you know why the churches were encouraged? It's because it was a decision that affirmed the gospel. It defended the gospel, proclaimed the gospel, displayed the gospel. You know, if I could summarize this sermon and pretty much any sermon that I give or Rafe gives, it's usually this equation. Jesus plus something will always equal nothing. Jesus plus nothing will always be everything. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray.
Father God, how humbling it is that even 2,000 years later, that here in a church in the Americas, in Chicago, that God, that as I look out into this room, all the different skin colors, races, cultures, backgrounds, that Father, this is the gospel at work, that this is the gospel movement that is happening. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the leadership of the Jerusalem Council and, God, their commitment to the gospel. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that, Father, that that would be our tradition as well, too, the one tradition that, God, that we would defend the gospel, that we would display the gospel, that we would make much of Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to never walk away from that foundation. God, if there's things, Lord, that might keep us, might hinder us, that we might have added to our our need for for acceptance or self-righteousness, God, help us to repent of those things, that Christ alone is all we need. So, Father, help us, Lord, through your grace. It's in his name we pray.